Oh, blessed Holy Spirit, come and descend into our hearts. You who are sent by the Father and the Son, we pray that you may come and give us understanding and stop our ears that we may hear you speaking to us. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may see the wonder and the glory of Christ Jesus our Lord. Come, O God, magnify Christ in our mind, in our hearts, in our understanding. For Jesus' sake, Amen. Now let's turn back to John's Gospel, John chapter 3. Our text this morning is verse 30. It's something very short and simple that all of us can remember. Our children may like to write down this text. John the Baptist saying here, He, referring to Jesus, He must increase, but I must decrease. I'm sure that the children can memorize this, surely they are doubt. He must increase, but I must decrease. But this morning we continue to look at the life and ministry of John the Baptist. And you may recall, we have already mentioned, that John the Baptist was the most selfless and self-effacing man. The Baptist is a wonderful and excellent example to all gospel workers. Many ministers, I should say all ministers learn from John the Baptist, and not just ministers of the gospel, but all Christians can learn from him, from his humility, from his Christ's sentiments. Now let us look at the occasion of this saying of the Baptist. Look at verse 22 in John chapter 3. We are told after this thing, Jesus and the disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Well, John is here uh, describing an early ministry of our Lord Jesus in Judea. You will remember uh, from Matthew, Mark, and Luke that Jesus' ministry uh, usually was in Galilee up north. But early on, he did minister in Judea. And we are told that Jesus and the disciples were there and they were baptizing. Now, if you look at chapter 4, verse 2, they clarify it's not Jesus himself who baptized, but his disciples. Now, while Jesus and his disciples were ministering, John, in verse 23, was also baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. 
Now from this we are very certain this is really early, early on in Jesus' ministry because uh, Jesus' main ministry began in earnest after John the Baptist was put in prison. But our Lord Jesus did had an earlier ministry before that. And in those early days, so to say, uh, John the Baptist was still free. Later on, you remember, John would be put into prison for preaching against the adultery of Herod. Remember that? Uh, John preached against uh, the sin of Herod, and for that, he got himself into prison, and he later on even cost his life. But coming back to our passage, while our Lord Jesus was ministering, baptizing, uh, using his disciples to baptize, and John was also ministering, so you have these two uh, great preachers ministering together, uh, not too far away from each other. Now, in verse 25, then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they, these John the Baptist's disciples, came to him and said, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Now, the situation is this. The Baptist disciples, they were under a fair bit of pressure. They were having debates with the Jews about purification. Uh, you know from the Old Testament, the Jews were obsessed about cleanliness, cleansing. Uh, they have to wash their hands, their bodies, uh, on so many occasions. So the Baptist disciples, they on the one hand were debating with the Jews, and maybe they, they were not that smart, they were losing the debates, they were having difficulty. And on the other hand, they could see so many people are now going to Jesus. And they're losing followers. And John's disciples were jealous for John. They say, well, we are losing so many people on our side. And so they came to John the Baptist and they said to him, Teacher, Rabbi, you know, the one whom you baptize, whom you testify to, well, this, this man Jesus, uh, he's getting more disciples for himself. He's attracting people away from us to himself. What is that? A jealousy. Party spirit. And this was not the first time in the history of God's people. Are we not, from time to time at least, also prone to this party spirit among Christians? We can be tempted to be very narrow-minded. Unless you agree with me in everything, you're out. We alone 
are right. Well, it's not just party spirit among Christians, but there's a more basic human problem and sin and temptation, isn't it? This is the matter of envy and jealousy. Any parents who has more than one child would quite often know something of sibling rivalry and jealousy, isn't it? It's not just boys fight, but girls fight. And it's not just sibling rivalry, but sometimes we can be jealous even of our best friend, isn't it? Or you go to school, you got a good friend, and you heard from your friend that she's doing so well, and you, you are you are tempted to be jealous. And we older folks, we can also be tempted to jealousy, isn't it? Uh, we may be in our 50s and 60s and, and we heard our school friends who are doing so well and we think of ourselves and we think, well, mm, <laughs> you don't feel terribly happy. This matter of jealousy can be so ugly that one can be jealous of his, her spouse. You think that is impossible? That a husband should be jealous of the wife. My wife is doing so well, climbing up the carpet ladder, and I'm falling behind. My wife is earning many more uh, than I am doing, and I feel put down. Well, this is a common human problem, isn't it? This uh, green eye monster, jealousy. This is our common temptation and our frequent snare. And ministers of the gospel are not exempt from this temptation. Uh, here, John the Baptist was put to the test. And I don't know whether this is profitable to you, but uh, you know the greatest preachers they can be tempted in this way. In his time, maybe the greatest preacher in Scotland, Alexander White, he confessed he was tempted not to be known as the greatest preacher in Scotland. He probably was in his time, in the 19th century, late 19th century, earlier 20th century. He was the greatest preacher in Scotland, but he was jealous. He confessed that he was tempted to that sin. Campbell Morgan, sometime after him in England, also subjected to the same temptation. Now, how about John here? How did he react? Did he get angry? Did he get a bit of self-pity? Did he say, well, that's not fair to me, isn't it? Jesus was baptized by me, but he's quicker than me now. Well, Lord, it's not fair. How did John respond? Listen to his brilliant testimony. In verse 
27. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourself bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Remember what I said to you, my disciples? I am not the Messiah. No. Jesus is the one who has come from above. I'm only his forerunner. Verse 29. It says, He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. How down to earth and homely is John's the Baptist teaching. He says, well, understand my disciples. I am not the bridegroom. Jesus, the Messiah, is the bridegroom. Who am I? I'm the best man. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. And now everyone is rejoicing because of the bridegroom. And I am happy as well. My joy is fulfilled. Now think like this, my dear friends. You go to your wedding, you're invited to be the best man in the wedding, and then you notice everyone is talking to the bridegroom, not taking notice of you, and you get jealous. You say, how come the attention is all on the bridegroom, not on me, I'm more handsome, I'm taller, I'm smarter. Well. If you were the best man in that case, you would say to yourself, what, what a terrible, ugly man you are! Stop that nonsense! Don't think like that! You should be rejoicing at this wedding because of the bridegroom and because the bride is coming! You are rejoicing in this wedding for the bridegroom with the bride. You shouldn't think of yourself. So John tells us in our text this morning, this is the motto of my life. Christ must increase, and I must decrease. And my dear friend, this is our theme this morning. Christ magnified, self-denied, is the very heart of the Christian life. You want to know what is the Christian life? Well, John says it here. Jesus must increase, self must decrease. I say this is the very beginning of the Christian life. Now let us look at some key texts on the cause of discipleship that Jesus told his disciples. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone decides to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You know, Jesus was a very popular preacher. And many hundreds and thousands of people wanted to follow him. 
But what did Jesus say to them? He warned them. He said to them, Well, if you really want to follow me, don't follow the crowd. If you really want to follow me, you have to deny yourself. Take up your own cross. What is the cross in those days? But death by a slow process. What is the cross but utter shame and humiliation? You want to follow me? Deny yourself. Die to self. Take up your cross and follow me. And verse 25. And whoever decides to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now this is a paradox, but a tremendous truth. Jesus says here, if you want to save your life, if you are saying to yourself, I, I have right over my life, I'm not going to yield to you, Jesus. I'm going to trust in my own strength. I'm going to keep my life. I'm going to do my things. I'm not going to obey you implicitly in everything. Well, if you hold on to your life, you want to save your life, you want to keep your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, now notice here, it's losing life for Jesus' sake. Not just losing life, but if you say, Lord Jesus, I'm not going to hold on to my life anymore. I'm going to surrender my life to you. You have eternal life. My dear friends, you know this is true, absolutely true. We shall elaborate, but one more passage. John chapter 12, verses 24 to 26. Now this is during the Passion Week, only a few days before Jesus' own crucifixion. And it's so uh, enlightening. John chapter 12, verse 24. Jesus says literally, Amen, Amen, I say to you. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces literally much fruit. He will love his life, will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serve me, he, my father, will honor. Now this is song declaration of our Lord Jesus. Only a few days before his death, and he's using this very homely illustration. He says, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it's only one seed, isn't it? But if it dies to the eye, so to say, you got that seed, you put it under the ground, it looks like you bury it, looks like it's died, 
What happened? Later on, you will bear much fruit. And those who love their life will lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And if you want to serve me, follow my son. Well, in this passage in John, Jesus is talking, first of all, a general principle. Sowing, dying, bearing fruit. And then he talks about himself. He wields his own forthcoming death as a seed buried under the ground, and it will bear much fruit. If our Lord Jesus refuses to go to the cross, if he refuses to die, he will only be one man. But because he laid down his life in obedience to the Father, and because he died and buried, he bare much fruit. And then thirdly, it's about his disciples. We who believe in him, we who follow him, we are to follow the same example. Now let me bring these two passages together and show you how this actually worked at the beginning of the Christian life. How does the Christian life begin? Let's go back to the beginning. How does it begin? It's when someone realizes, saying to himself, I am a sinner. You can't start the Christian life without that. You can't bypass that. It's very humbling, isn't it? But when someone comes to know and feel, not just saying in his mouth, but say, I really feel I'm a sinner against God. And then furthermore, the person says, I cannot save myself. No matter what I may do, I cannot save myself. And now I come to know that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And Jesus is not just the Savior of the world, but Jesus is my Savior. He alone can save me. And then, you save from the death of your being. I would like to take Jesus to be my Savior. I can't save myself. So I'm going to commit myself, my body, my soul to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm no longer not my own. My dear friend, what is that? But self-denial. Is it not self-denial? When the gospel talks about self-denial, it's not that you stop eating chocolate. No. Self-denial is deny your whole self. And then it's at the beginning of the Christian life, you say, I am no longer my own master. Lord Jesus, you are my Lord, you are my master. I die to myself. I surrender my life to you. Take me, Lord, to be your people. I want to ask each and every one of you, is this true of you? I don't care about your age. I don't care about how long you've been in church. You know, someone can be in church for 
50 years and yet not have come to this basic surrendering of his life to Jesus. Have you done this? Have you started this basic self-denial? That I surrender my all to the Lord Jesus? You died yourself? You're committed to follow Christ? In his death, in his life? If so, this is the beginning of the Christian life. But friends, this is only the beginning of the Christian life. There's so much more. There's the continuation. Look at verse 36 in John chapter 3. We go back to John chapter 3. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. My dear friends, this morning, if you have true spiritual life, your greatest desire is to magnify Christ, to make Christ great, to honor Him, at the same time, to diminish self. This is the fundamental commitment in the Christian life. You know the Christian life is very focused. It is very simple. It is deep and profound, but when we elevate it, it lifts up self from self. Instead of living for the things in this world, instead of living for self, the Christian's fundamental drive is to live for Christ and put self down. It's both growing up to Christ and going down to the dust. Now this is the continuation of the Christian life. Self becomes less and less important. My feelings, the Christian says, who cares about my feelings? My wealth, that does not matter. My status, no importance. My achievement in life in comparison to others, doesn't matter. Like John the Baptist here, he's losing people to Jesus. That's fine. What others think of me doesn't matter. Self and feelings and achievement and status and one's place in society or even in the church become increasingly unimportant. I mentioned to you time and time again about Bishop Frank Horton. 
He was the general director of the China Inland Mission. But after the communists took over China, he sensed this is a new stage for the mission. They changed their name from China Inland Mission to Overseas Missionary Fellowship, OMF. Because there's no more China in the mission. And he stepped down from his great position as the general director of China in the mission. And he became a humble country minister in England, in a small town. What, what humility is it? What humility? He was a bishop, a bishop of Western China. <laughs> but now China's gone, so he was no more bishop. Now, in those days, uh, some of you don't understand, perhaps, but in those days, among godly Christians, uh, to be a, a China in a missionary means you are one cut above the rest of the Christian world. How to get in China in a mission. But to be the general director of China in a mission, well, you are really somebody. At the peak of CIM, they got about a thousand or even over a thousand missionaries. What a minute. Dying yourself. And this is a process. And this is what Paul calls in Romans chapter 8, verse 13. The putting to death, the deeds of the body, the killing of sin in the language of John Owen. But this is the negative side. That's the positive side, isn't it? The other side is that the Christian want to magnify Christ more and more. It's not just the negative, the diminishing of self, but it's the exaltation of Christ. One thinks more and more about Christ. The contemplation of Christ begins to fill one's mind and heart. Jesus becomes more and more important in one's mind. Friends, this is what we should amen and strive for. I thought of bringing to you a little illustration. I thought of bringing to you uh, a cup filled, filled with water. Well, I did not do this because I thought that maybe it's too childish and I may get in trouble. Uh, but think of having a glass of water, filled with water. How much more water can you feel? into that cup. Nothing. But you empty half of the cup. How much water can you feel? Half a cup. You empty all the cup. And this is what I'm thinking. I get a cup, get the water, and pour the water down here, but they'll get the floor wet. I mean, we're too dramatic. I'm not going to do it. So, if the cup is all empty, then you can hold a whole cup of maybe the finest water. You got the point? We empty ourselves so that we can be filled with Christ. 
And my dear friends, if you find yourself, you, you can't stop thinking about yourself. You get upset about what people may think of you. Your achievement or level of achievement, your, your logo, your, your income, or all those kind of things. Well, you know the, the better thing. It's not so much fun to envy yourself. You should. I should as well. But to turn your mind to think of the Lord Jesus. Who is He? Where do we find Jesus? Not just in the four gospels, but in Paul's letters. Not just in Paul's letter, but in Genesis. Not just in Genesis, but in Exodus, in Leviticus. Oh yes. In Numbers also, in Deuteronomy. Oh yes, in, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, and so on. Think of Christ. Think much of him, study him, study his person, his character, his work. To start with, think of who Jesus is, he's the God-man. Oh well, but how did he become the God-man? His birth, his incarnation. Think of his character, what is Jesus like? Think of his work on the cross and even now. Fill your mind with Christ. And then endeavor, asking yourself, how can I honor and serve Jesus? Give you a quick look to Philippians chapter 1, verse 20 to 21. Uh, Philippians 1, Paul is there in prison, awaiting trial. But he says, My hope is that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Think of Paul, he was in prison. It was not a nice place to be in at any time, but certainly not in the first century uh, woman well. And Paul says, I would like to magnify Christ in my body, by my life, while I'm in prison, and even in my death. If I should be executed, whatever form that may be, I would like to honor Christ in life and in death. This is the continuation of the Christian life. What does it mean? Let us ask. Does it mean everyone should be a missionary? A minister? A gospel worker? Does it mean that? Well, the answer is no. You know why this is no? Because, look at 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. Paul says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's because for the Christian living his life, is that no matter what he may do, even eating and drinking, 
He should do that to the glory of God. You don't have to be a gospel worker. You don't have to be a missionary. You can be doing anything, even drinking a cup of soft drink, even eating what they want to eat, sandwich. You can do it to the glory of God, and you ought to be. And friends, the great burden of, of New Testament Christian living is not that everyone should be a minister, no, but that every Christian should live out a Christian life by glorifying God in his own particular life calling in every detail. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Let me explain. Look at a few passages. Perhaps just one or two. Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. Slaves. Slaves. It's no fun to be slaves, isn't it? Imagine you were a slave in the first century world. And your master told you, you go and clean up the bathroom. Not very nice. Or your master tell you, now you go to the field and take the ground. Not very nice. And worse still, you know, if you were a man, the master may say to you, now you my slave, you go to the mine. You go down the pits. And you're going to mine this mineral from the ground. That, that would be very dangerous and uh, hard work. But Paul says, Slaves, obeying all things your masters, according to the flesh, not with eye service as man pleases, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord, and not to man. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. You see? The slave in the first century, well, they don't have freedom to do what they may like to do. And Paul says, you obey your master in everything. Why? Because in your obeying your master, in your serving your master, you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. You are magnifying Christ. And whatever you may do, do it from your heart. As to the Lord, you may be cleaning the bathroom, you may be farming, you may be going down the mine. You are to do all things to the Lord Jesus Christ for His glory and your reward. It's not your pay. Slave didn't get paid in those days. Your reward is God Himself. One more passage under this heading. Remember Ephesians chapter 5? Paul says to Christian husbands, Husband, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up. Husband, love your wife. Why should I love my wife? Is it because if I don't love my wife, She'll give me an ugly face. 
I won't have my dinner. No. But husband, love your wife just like Jesus loved the church. You love your wife for Jesus' sake. You magnify Christ in all that you do. So we are called to honor God and serve Christ every day in our God-given duty as husband, as wife, as workers, as children, as retired people. Now you may be retired, but you don't get retired from serving the Lord. Only recently I heard of a 90-year-old plus minister whom I know doing street evangelism every day in Hong Kong. I said, where? I remember him in the days of my youth. He was very enthusiastic, but now he's 90 something, and every day he's doing street evangelism in Hong Kong. Thanks be to God, it's still legal. More legal than in Australia. But friends, think like this. There are many more 90 years old plus Christian believers in aged care facility glorifying God in being dependent on others and contented and thankful. Have you thought of that? You may be an older person, you may be in an aged care facility, you are completely dependent on others, but there you may be, but you are joyful and contented and thankful. And you magnify Christ. You may not be able to get out or walk to do switch evangelism, but you are honoring Christ. Dr. Graham Miller, a man of God whom I met, only once, you know, when he was in nursing home, he was well known as the best dressed resident in that home. He was a perfect Christian gentleman, and he bore witness to Christ in that way. Dr. John Stock, a lifelong bachelor, in his days he was known as the Pope of evangelical Christianity. When he got older, he was in a nursing home, suffering uh, greatly. But people testified. When they went to see Dr. John Stock, he won't talk about his aches and pains and inconvenience. He was wholeheartedly concerned for the younger ministers who went to see him. And he would inquire about them. How is your ministry? Are you discouraged? His whole heart was for the people, and people who went to see him was, were greatly encouraged. He was magnifying Christ. Have you seen Dr. Jack Jayakam? When he was very old and fair. You saw that video? Do a search. Jayakam. He was very old and fair but he was still bearing witness to Christ in that condition. One last word. 
you know, as we continue on in the Christian life, we discover our pride, our jealousies, our imperfections, our shortcomings, our sins. And we feel deeply we're falling short of what we should be. And that's why, as a Christian grows, he grows in humility. He grows in his trusting in Jesus' shed blood for him. He says, There I go, but for the grace of God. I'm far, far from what I ought to be. He feels our sins of commission and also his sins of omission. He grows in his humility, he grows in his faith, and he grows in his longing for the Lord Jesus Christ. He grows in his love that he can say with the Apostle John, one day when Jesus is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Before I close, let me ask you just one thing. You may complain that your longing for Christ is small. But do you have a spark of a longing for Jesus? Just a spark. Have you, got, have you got that, that spark of longing for Jesus? Just a spark. And do you complain? My love for Jesus is so little. Friends, I want to say to you that is a good complaint. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, we pray, we ask that we may begin to begin to see something more of the excellency of Christ, His beauty, His loveliness, and His love for our soul. Bring us to the cross that we may stand at the foot of the cross and gaze and wonder at the Saviour's love for us so that we shall be lost in wonder, love and praise. For Jesus' sake. Amen.